Welcome to Coffee with April. What you're about to listen to is the audio recording of our April video content. We're bringing this to you in audio form to make sure you can take it with you wherever you go. For the full video, please visit our YouTube channel, Coffee with April. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee with April. This time, we're going to talk about origin. Uh, I have been in Kenya. I've Joe has been, been in, in Ethiopia. Yep. And there's some very interesting insights that we've been getting from these trips, and we want to share them with you. So we have a few different points we're going to run through, um, and we're going to give you kind of two different perspectives on a lot of the similar issues, Yeah, actually, because I think both origins are, are complicated. Yeah, in, in different ways, and that's what makes it so interesting, especially from our own sort of naive ideas that these were our first trips to Africa. It's been really interesting to see what the reality is uh, for the coffee purchase supply chain and also the, the major differences between two countries that we buy a large amount of coffee from. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And we, we should say for the sake of this kind of interview, just in general, I mean, we've been to these countries, but we haven't seen everything, no. right? By so no this means. is, you know, portions, sure. reflections on a very small portion of you know, a much bigger country. So we're not going to claim that we know everything about these countries. We're just going to share the kind of insights that sure. that we had here. I um, mean, if anything, it's as much that we we still know very little. We know more than we did in the, before we uh, went on these trips. But a lot of these things are so that we can actually learn more. Um, it's better for us to take what we've seen already and, and discuss it and uh, try to, to develop a better understanding um, as opposed to just work with the preconceptions or the things that we, yeah. we may think that we've seen. So um, we're going to do that today. We're going to go through some of the differences, some of the similarities, um, what our personal opinions as well as sort of professional and, and the April approach would be to these things. Mm. Um, but we also invite people that are watching to to talk about their experiences as well, and uh, maybe we can learn some more. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you just comment down here as always. Um, I think one of the, the first things that always comes to mind, one of the main reasons for us visiting these countries yeah. was traceability. Sure. Right? How can we actually make sure that the coffee we're buying comes from you know where it's supposed to come sure. from? Because yeah. in both countries, what we see is this today massive cooperatives with you know over a thousand members. Um, and one of the things that we are looking for the most is traceability. Sure. Right? Yep. And when we say traceability, we mean down to a specific lot of coffee, right? So yes. let's say we buy 30 bags of Ethiopian coffee. Yep. We want to be able to go to Ethiopia and basically see where that coffee is grown. Right? Yeah. So yeah, we're talking about fully traceable. So in this case, when we talk about traceability, we're talking about going specifically into uh, farms themselves or areas and looking at the, the plots and the trees, uh, is that actually manageable? Is that something that's possible? As opposed to traceable down to, say, a cooperative level. Um, so that kind of leads to a question here, which would be, would or is cooperative coffee fully traceable in that idea? Um, I know you found some really interesting things in Kenya. I mean, it's scale-based. Yeah, generally. I mean, it's, it's for, first of all, one should keep in mind that the systems that are in place are in place mainly due to making the most efficient uh, logistic behind coffee, right? Mm. So yeah, oh, 100%. When you come to, first of all, Kenya and Ethiopia both have, in general, very small fa farmers yep. in the sense that they don't grow a lot of coffee. So it makes sense to combine it. If you own a, a processing mill, that costs a lot of money, so it makes sense to process more people's coffee, right? 
So we're, we're not against the idea that people are, are consolidating yeah. and trying to make it work together. What we don't like is the fact that we, we actually don't see a traceability, right? Sure. And what I see in Kenya, and I can say this with, with pretty much certainty, and I'm gonna argue that anyone that argues differently are probably bullshitting a bit, but you can't get traceability. Mm. If you go to a cooperative with 500 plus members, mm. there's no way they're gonna be able to tell sure. you exactly where that coffee no. comes from. I mean, we're, we're at a level where some people bring the coffee to a process station on a donkey. Oh, right? 100%. I mean, Which I, is basically at the OP as well. Yeah, so the, to kind of put a point to that, that would be my impression as well from Ethiopia. At one point I was out in uh, the sort of forest area looking at trees and I hear some people coming and it's two guys with a mule and their cherries then strapped on and then they're making their way to the washing station for submission. Uh, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to trace then. I mean, it's clearly the, the best for everyone in the current uh, operation of the supply chain the wet mill continues to have coffee submitted and they want to be keeping this wet mill running 24 hours to make the full money out of it. It makes sense if you're going to invest in the equipment. And if you as a farmer can then transport yourself, you're saving yourself the cost there. Uh, so you're going to make the most from the margin that you're actually submitting. Sure. However, is there a consideration to where this particular coffee has been cultivated? Not necessarily. Then you might end up with this idea of, well, they're from this particular part of the region or, or this particular area, but it's very difficult to trace yeah. anything beyond that point. Um, for us, working with the volumes that we work with, we don't necessarily need to buy from the larger cooperatives in that sense. If there is the possibility that we can buy from people that are working on a smaller scale, that does allow us to be traceable. Sure. So in this case, that might then mean a cooperative that has far fewer members. So I know you were talking about, for example, in Kenya, you know, the potential for like a 20-person cooperative or something yeah, like Yeah, I mean, this. there are some ideas. I mean, there's even some examples of single farmers that, that we kind of know and operate. Um, we just perhaps don't like their coffee. Um, and I know in Ethiopia it's coming as well, right? But yeah. I think, first of all, it's important to um, discuss, I mean, why, why in the world care in the first place? Yeah. Because part of the issue, um, which is also amazing, with both Kenyan and Ethiopian coffee is that by default, they're kind of delicious, yeah. right? Um, so then it's like, why even question the fact because they are delicious and historically, this part of the industry is validating what we do based on the cup quality, mm. right? And April is at a point now where, where we've been visiting some other farmers that we work with and we're so impressed with the traceability they sure. work with, with the standards they have. Alejo at Volcanazo is a great example in Costa Rica. Yeah. And then we go down to the other, these other countries and we see, even if the coffee quality can be good, mm. the maintenance on the farm, yeah. the condition of the trees, sure. the amount of pesticides, fungicides, all kind of shit, yeah. is just completely, you know, it, it, it's not even on the map sure. or in the ballpark the way people do, right? So yeah. that's, that's why we care, that's why we do this kind of in the first place. Um, there are some really interesting options. We saw some great stuff in Kenya as well. Yeah. Um, and I think, one, for me personally, at least, one of the main things uh, behind why do we want traceability mm. is, which brings us to another point, is varietals, mm. which is not as much of an issue in Ethiopia. There is definitely potential there, but in Kenya, what we see now sure. is that we see a bunch of hybrid varietals that are basically disease-resistant yep. in various ways, yep. mainly focusing on leaf rust. Uh, we're talking Bathian, Ruri 11. Um, yep. There is a bunch of them. 
and I'm gonna argue that they taste pretty inferior to the standard mm. SL28, SL34. Mm. So my general argument with Kenya is that the coffee quality has declined over the last year. Sure. And a big part of that is the increasing mix of varietals yeah. on the farms, right? But, so I, I, I saw the point to that would be, the question is, where is the influence coming from to plant these particular var varietals? And is that also a factor in cooperatives? Um, essentially here, if, if a cooperative is operating under the, the idea that everyone is working together, everyone is submitting to the same lot, you would want some form of uniformity. The thing is, is for a cooperative to operate at its full potential, you want the highest yields. So it's this idea of that a, a cooperative, whilst still having its best interests at heart, which you can always say is then the best interest of the members of the cooperative, the farmers themselves, does it service the best interest of the quality of coffee? Not necessarily. And I Kenya mean, is an interesting thing for yeah. us because for most cooperative, well, I say most, it's an assumption, but for a lot of cooperatives, they're working with, uh, you know, pesticides suppliers directly in this sense, or insecticide suppliers. Yeah, that sure. means subsidized pesticides and insecticides for all members of the cooperative. That yeah, then definitely. means that you're essentially within this system, not just in terms of growing coffee and submitting coffee, but in all different levels of agriculture. I mean, that can lead to, to difficulties as well, surely. I mean, economies of scale makes it easier for cost, sure, but that's not the only factor at play. So no, there's a potential I mean, here for... It, it comes down to, and I'm not 100% sure how they played this in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. but uh, we said this before in a previous video in Kenya, whereas the issue in Kenya is that um, a wet mill then sells the coffee to a dry mill sure. in 99% yeah, yeah, yeah. of the cases. Yep. And the dry mill uh, pays based on parchment quality, yep. not on cup quality. Sure. There's two different things, right? Yep. So they buy a certain kind of parchment and then they evaluate the cup score mm. and then something else happens, yep. right? So there's, there's obviously an issue with uh, countries that are uh, trading mainly on the, the visual appearance of something apart from the sure, taste quality, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's interesting with these varietals. I mean, we know they're coming up to make the, the farmer's lives easier. Um, they should be able to yield higher, give you know, a better, more secure financial situation, mm -hmm. which we support 100%. But uh, kind of back to Costa Rica, because I've just been here, when, when we looked at the trees, the highest quality trees was SL28, mm -hmm. uh, which is like the varietal that should not be able to yeah. do very well. And the leaf-resistant shit, mm. uh, hybrids, which to be fair, some of them are tasty, um, were by far the worst condition in terms yeah. of trees, right? So that's an interesting discussion as well. well one of the best farm experiences in Kenya was uh, fully organic by Kenyan standards, mm. which is not necessarily what we call fully organic, but it was a farm that only pushed SL28s mm. um, and had the spacing between the trees were, were amazing, right? There, there sure. was by far one of the lower yielding farms yeah. in the area yeah. uh, because they're not going for volume, they're going for quality. Sure. But um, for me, there's no, there's very little correlation between what a cooperative is trying to push the farmer to do, mm. which is creating a higher level of grade one parchment versus someone that is like, I'm farming based on cup quality. Yeah. And I think that's the difference I see in, in a lot of countries around the world versus cooperative structures. Sure. Yeah. That's why at April we tend not to buy so much from cooperative structures in, yeah. in general. I mean, the difficulties here are, when we talk about the differences in supply chain, uh, you, re you reference now Alejo in Costa Rica. Yeah. This is an example of a farmer that owns his own land, 
owns his own wet mill, owns his own dry mill, owns his own export license, can uh, backpack, ship out directly. I mean, he encompasses all areas of a coffee supply chain, actually. Still works with distributors in Europe, but up until that point, he's managing everything, as opposed to, for example, you know, Colombia, then you might have that broken into phases, right? So you might still then process a farm separately, but you would then process that in a wet mill and then keep those lots separate through somebody else's dry mill and then send those out for export. Kenya and Ethiopia is going to be very different. Sure. Uh, the idea and the expectation of, have, of even a farmer owning their own land, land that's large enough to cultivate a crop that could be considered to be you know, a singular lot or enough to actually process is incredibly difficult. And then it's the expectation of them to own essentially a hand pulping machine to be able to, to work with that. Um, it's understandable why the cooperative model is the, the predominant. Um, so that's always going to create the challenge. But it does then mean that the rest of the supply chain in Ethiopia, I'm not sure about Kenya, but the scale is huge, which makes it very difficult to utilize those parts of the supply chain for the kind of things that we would be looking for. So yeah. even if we were to then go out and identify, say, like a you know, 20 member cooperative that's growing garden coffee, they're bringing that then through a wet mill. Well, the wet mill is like, they're processing such a volume of coffee that their discrepancy <laughs> is probably larger than the, the full lot of our coffee. The same goes for a dry yeah, mill, sure. which means if we were to actually then put that through one, put that through another, come back and pick that coffee up at the end, we wouldn't really have a certainty that that coffee is the coffee that we sourced initially no, because the, the scales are just too large. Yeah, and especially we've seen that in Ethiopia, there's been some amazing historical uh, processing stations yeah. like Durumina, Biftipudina, that mm. Nanoshala produce the best tasting coffees you could ever find from yeah. that country. Yeah. Today you, you try their coffee and they're not very good sure. because they're overproducing, right? Yeah. And I mean, first of all, one, a cooperative model is amazing. We, we're not sitting here giving shit to a cooperative no, no, model. No. What we're saying is that why in the world are we allowing them to sell us coffee without giving us traceability? Because in theory, you should be able to. Mm. It's a bit of paperwork. Yeah. You should actually be able to trace a lot without that much difficulty. Uh, it's just a matter of a bit more work. Um, and I think we're justifying this by the fact that the coffee is tasty. Sure. As long as the coffee is tasty, we're not asking any questions, right? Yep. Uh, and I think that's a very, very big issue in, in terms of how we push things in the industry. Um, but I mean, keep in mind, and it's pretty naive to think otherwise, if, we, if someone buys a dry mill or a, a wet mill, I mean, dry mill are mainly owned by exporters, right? Because there's a connection. Sure. And then yeah. a wet mill can be owned by someone else, sometimes yep. an exporter, but, but often someone more independent. Uh, these machines are really expensive. Incredibly expensive. It's like when you buy a roaster, right? Yeah. You don't buy a roaster to roast one day a week. No. Um, you buy a roaster because you want to roast seven days a week, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. you spend a lot of money in machinery. And it's the same for a dry mill or a wet mill. So their job is kind of, let's fill that wet mill as much as yeah, we yeah. can yeah, you want to, maximize to make back money, right? which is also, to be fair, makes all the sense in the world, yeah. right? Uh, it's just that we all know that mass production or for any unit, whether it's a roastery, a wet mill, a dry mill, for anyone that is producing up until the capacity of yeah. what they can, yeah. that's usually not the best way to produce quality. No. I mean, and to, I think we've seen that. To give you a good example of why this becomes a, maybe a, a difficulty for us or a challenge, 
uh, would be if we highlight one of the lots that we bought from Ethiopia last year that was a specifically designated, designated farm lot. So we could- Zebde. Yeah, Zebde. So Zebde uh, is a particular varietal. It's from a particular part of the farm. Uh, all those trees were planted at the same time. They were spaced the same way. Um, the pickings will have been taken over a period, but then that was um, picked from the same lot and uh, processed fully naturally on the beds, and this would have been at a metad station called Bishanfugu, uh, which is in the Guji region. And uh, Bishanfugu only deals with fully natural coffees. So they have several of these farm areas, they also take in other cooperative coffee, and they process full naturals. About five, ten minute walk from there is the Alaka washing station, also owned by Metad. Um, they're producing a large volume of uh, fully washed coffee. They've got a um, two-barrel Panagos system that they're, they're working with. That's on 24 hours a day. One of the things we spoke about immediately after my visit was, can we take what we did in Bishanfugu and can we put that through Alaka essentially to create a traceable, farm-grown, wash-process wash coffee? Yeah. And the answer is, it may be possible, but is the value really there? I mean, it, it's, as we already mentioned, the scale is so large that we're not necessarily guaranteed to get the coffee that we, we chose. It would end up blended in with a lot of other coffee just because of the way that the system works. Um, and at the same time, again, they would most likely need to halt what they're doing in terms of their production, create so much unnecessary disruption uh, that essentially it's, it's going to cause more problems for everyone. Yeah. So right now, our conclusion is, okay, then we focus on the highest quality natural processed coffees that we can, that they're fully traceable. Uh, it does create a lot of questions. It's something that we never really considered until we were there in that sense, um, which is an interesting learning. Yeah, I mean, the important question here is what's the most important part, mm. right? Is that traceability for your coffee or... Um, having a coffee that you you always love, right? Not saying that we don't like naturals, but I think most people following in April knows that you know we're we're not a huge fan, fan of naturals, mm. right? But as Joe say as well, there's a reason why people that are pitching single farm Ethiopian coffees. It's a reason why that often happens to be a natural coffee now. I mean, Tim Endebo just pushed like three natural coffees sure. this year, which is like, <laughs> has I mean, he ever done that before? No, but. Yeah. He does it because that's how he gets a single farmer Ethiopian. So yeah. he makes a decision there, right? Not saying I know anything about how he trades coffee, but obviously it's, it's important that there's a traceability in a single farmer sure. in that, right? And, yep. and I'm kind of bound to move in a similar direction there. Mm. I mean, I'm, we're still this close to cut off Kenya, mm. uh, which I hate because I love Kenyan coffees. But the lack of traceability is... Sure. For me, it doesn't make sense because yeah. such a big part of what we do is actually working with farmers that has an expression sure. uh, or producers that has an expression. I mean, I think both Burundi and Rwanda is, is easier in terms of traceability sure. than, than a lot of the other parts of the world, yeah. right? I mean, these are farms as well that when we talk about, for example, Bishanfugu and Alaka, uh, there's a lot of their coffees around Europe. You'll find their coffees in many different places. It's a very high volume. Um, at the same time as I'm visiting, they're also installing Pinagos dryers. So, but at the same time, they're talking about acquiring more land, producing more traceable uh, lots of specifically planted things and the, the kind of things that they know that we're interested in as a business. They obviously had no reason to pitch us the mechanical dryers 
Um, but then you go, okay, but the business plan here is in two separate directions at the same time that actually seem to be of some uh, contradiction to some extent. I mean, maybe there's a learning here. I know that Alejo, for example, he does utilize mechanical dryers to stabilize coffee. Yeah. Maybe this is an example of where sort of mass production and the smaller sort of batch lots can benefit each other to some extent. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on the paper, but I mean, in theory, one should say a mechanical dryer you use because you want to dry faster, yeah. right? That's, I mean, that's, would, that's really, yeah. or you have a really unstable climate. Sure. And I mean, essentially, I've read it as maximizing growth, yeah. but in the same way that you, yeah, you, that could, you read yeah. the idea of acquiring land is also maximizing growth, but yeah. you're just growing in a different demographic. Yeah. You're growing in the now growing demographic of coffee yeah. roasters that want fully traceable farm-grown coffee as opposed to co-ops. I mean, the, the real challenge will, will always be, it, it so often comes down to drying, mm. uh, because again, you know, the coffee is depolled the same day it's picked often, and then in, in Kenya, Ethiopia, often they soak it for maybe 12 hours a day, and then they more or less dry it. Yep. It's not more complicated than yep. that. But the challenge is, and um, um, was that Bruno describing that to us once? Mm. I don't know. Bruno is a partner farmer in Brazil, but he basically said that it doesn't matter if I uh, produce two containers or 20 containers of coffee, mm -hmm. they're all picked, processed within the same three months sure. every year, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the challenge we have here. The, the more coffee someone is producing, mm -hmm. the more space they need, yeah. or the faster they need to process the coffee. Sure. That's the only two options. Yep. There's no other way, because the coffee needs to be picked within a certain time, which yep. in both Ethiopia and Kenya will start basically end of November, and finish in mm -hmm. December, and then they go on processing, uh, and then they need to pack, export, and ship, right? Yep. So there's a, there's an obvious challenge here with, with anyone that wants to grow their business from a wet note perspective, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why we see so many of those stations um, just grow into not producing very tasty coffee, sure. because they're rushing it, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and, and that's not a good way to taste coffee. No, that's understandable. Um, we yeah, have one more point. We have a few things. I just I want to utilize this idea of um, farm-grown versus wild coffees or garden coffees. So this is specifically a little more Ethiopia-based here in the, the different models because it is rare to find people who actually own a large enough amount of land mm. to, to farm as a specific coffee farm that's not then based as uh, what you would consider garden coffee, essentially mm. the, the land that families or smallholders will own and will cultivate. Uh, I mean, essentially here... The farm-grown coffee is still shade-grown for the most part. They can be uh, uniform varietals, whether or not that's actually an advantage or not, but it, by keeping them traceable, you are then able to, to sort of track this mm. and taste it and measure it in a way that you're not able to do with the larger lots. The blending just, yeah. you know, really evens this out too much. Um, but it does still need to be very much controlled. There, there needs to be an idea of what else are you growing within the farm, the, the shade trees need to be as sustainable as the coffee in that sense. There needs to be nutrients going back into the soil. From the other side, at least with the wild and the garden coffees, you know that generally this land is the way that people are going to live. They're going to grow their own food here, which generally means that, sure, the, the yields would be a little bit lower in that sense. They, they have to be for other things to grow well and survive well and then to produce as much plantain and all those kind of things. Um, but that's helping with the ecosystem of the, uh, the ecology for, for growing coffee. Um, the problem is then you can't really shift out of this cycle. So when we talk about like the density in Ethiopia, to move from 
garden coffees to farm grown, then you're taking over land which is already uh, habited. Sure. And it's interesting, but Ethiopia is 100 million people. There's a lot of people out there. You go out to, to Yirgashev, and it's one of the densest places that I visited the whole time. And you can see these pictures of, you know, the plains and the trees growing naturally in the forest, but it's, that's not necessarily the, the reality there. Mm. Um, there is no one that's, that's better than the other. They're just different. I'm interested in the symbiosis between them uh, and how that will continue to develop through the future. Yeah, I mean, there, there will always be a political side of it, right? Which is, mm. that's because what you're pitching now is kind of outside of, of coffee in the sense yeah. that there's a lot of perspectives that goes into this kind of Hugely, stuff. Hugely, right? yeah, yeah. And it, it's naturally, it, it's diversity is always the key to, to everything, yeah. more or less. Um, but it's also pretty clear that, you know, w what they're pushing in Ethiopia at the moment in terms of volumes are, are not sustainable. And it mm. is going to either f take away land from other stuff. Yeah. Um, or just in general fuck up quality because the demand is so high mm. that they can't really deal with it. Yeah. Um, but let's see, I mean, time will tell. There's a, there was a really interesting presentation done a few years back um, at a Nordic Roaster Forum. I forget the dude, he's a very famous guy. We'll, mm. we'll Google that and we put it down in the links. Oh, I know who you mean. Because he did a pitch based, yeah, he, did, he made a pitch yes. based on climate change. Yeah. So he did this report where he was saying that, okay, so climate change is happening. Yeah. Will this destroy coffee production in Ethiopia? And then his conclusion, at least in that presentation back then, mm -hmm. was no. Because yeah. it turns out that a lot of the places we grow coffee in now in Ethiopia is really not suitable for it. Yeah. And it never was. Sure. It was basically planted yeah. in the wrong place. Yeah. So now we have the opportunity of planting it in the right place, yeah. which could actually yield better mm. um, and have higher quality than the current sure. uh, coffee. Right? So, yeah. No, there's always interesting dynamics to this as well. Yeah. Um, let's cover our, our next point. We don't sure. want to drive this out too long. Yes. Um, I think processing is the one thing we haven't really discussed. Yeah, we should talk about that specifically. Um, uh, uh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, Joe actually wrote on a board here, what yeah, process slash, like, can it be sustainable, I guess? Yeah, I mean... Of course not. No. I think and this, the answer, right? This is I mean, another question about, like, we're using a lot of buzzwords here, fully traceable, sustainable. Yeah. Depends what your definition of sustainability really is. Um, sure. I just had this conversation with, with our friend Leo um, because it, it's, you can approach this argument from, from many different ways, but let's just break down the structure of a wash processing first, right? So you're going to have the cherries delivered at the mill, then those cherries need to be depulped, so they're going to use a depulping machine. In this case, this where I was visiting at least is a Panago system, so that's using less, way less yeah, way less water. But still, you're in a country where uh, clean water is a massive luxury, and there it's a big expense as well for them to create the borehole to get enough water for these processes. Uh, following on from that, then you're going to take. Uh, from the pulping, you're going to get a huge amount of pulp left over, of which there's not really a huge amount you can do with. You can compost it to a degree, but the, the ratios will be way too high, so most likely that's going to go off to be burnt, I would assume. Um, Depending on the farm, I mean, you can you can also, it's a shitload of potassium, right? Sure. So you could actually utilize it in the farming as well. But sure, it's, it's, I mean, it's the, a lot of the, the amount of it is the question. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, for example, sure. a cooperative washing station, if that's 
working 24 hours, you've got an ever-increasing yeah. pile of pulp. Yeah. And for the most part, it's not the priority of the people managing the washing yeah. station. It's, if anything, the least priority. But anyway, that's going to be one of the waste products. The other side of that is then that you're going to have the cherries, uh, sorry, the seeds come out with a little bit of mucilage into the water, into the washing channels. Um, so there you're going to need a lot of water. And both the water that it's washed with and the water that it's soaked with, uh, that needs to go somewhere following the processing. So that's going to take in all of the sugars. The sugars are then going to convert into more harmful chemicals. Um, if that runs off as wastewater, then that's either going to pollute other forms of uh, fresh water in the area, or it may then go through the soil and be filtered before it goes into an aquifer. But there's a certain capacity for that before you again begin to change the toxicity of the soil in the area that you're in. The alternatives, though, I mean, it, there doesn't seem to be Natural. any. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that, for example, Bruno, he is running his used uh, his wastewater through uh, stones and rocks in order to at least try to diffuse as much of the sort of chemical content as possible. Um, but for the most part, what I saw, at least in Ethiopia, was you would have a sort of step down of tanks. Yeah. in which kind of like a lock system in a canal in which that you can then sort of divert it through and you can evaporate off as much water as possible. But it was clear that the infrastructure for this and the volumes that were being produced were completely at odds with each other. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't add up. I don't think it adds up anywhere in the world, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I think this was... I can't be wrong here, but let, let's go back in history again. Um, Graciano. Yeah, most of you guys know him. Sure. Uh, famous Panamanian farmer slash everywhere farmer slash you know. Yeah. He knows Just a lot about around, farming, basically. All around good dude. And he, I think, still only does natural processed coffees to some well, degree. Yeah, naturals and honeys. Yeah, yeah. Because he did washed coffees, uh, and he got like an organic certification for his farm, and yeah. then he made some calculations on the water that was produced there, and got pretty angry over the fact that someone gave him a organic certification mm -hmm. because it doesn't add up. Sure. Um, water is an issue. Water is an issue, first of all, of what will happen with the water as Joe just described, but it's also, um, as mentioned, where do you get the water from, Sure. right? Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna argue, unless you have a natural water source on your farm, don't wash your coffees. Yeah. Financially, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Labor, it doesn't make any sense. It makes sense because we love washed coffees. But that's an extremely egoistic perspective on, you know, why should you do this? Um, I mean, technically, uh, but I mean, Panagos as well, which you talked about, you know, amazing machine, yeah. and, you know, eliminates most of the waste of water in mm -hmm. comparison to traditional ways to do it, right? Sure. So there is innovation here. Uh, but I mean, let's face it, wash process coffee, there's an issue here, right? Yeah. It really is. And, and at some point, we are going to have to face this and, and come up with some kind of solution to it. Mm. Um, I mean, natural, the only real issue with natural processed coffees is that they often taste like shit. Sure. Apart from that, from an environmental perspective, if you benchmark it with a wash processed coffee, yep. there's, I mean, you can't compare it in that no. sense. From an environmental perspective, we should all just do natural sure. coffees. Yeah. Uh, or anaerobic coffee. Let's let's discuss anaerobic coffees because that's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what you saw in Ethiopia, but in Kenya, I see something that I get pretty frustrated about. Sure. Uh, I get frustrated about that everywhere in the world when I see it. Um, 
where we talk about these anaerobic fermentation, which is basically yep. low oxygen fermentation or yep. zero oxygen fermentation. Whereas some farmers do that in a very creative way, which basically just take a plastic bucket and put some coffee in there mm. and put a lid on and mm. just store it away and then take it out. And then you have some people like Alejo, I know we talk about him a lot, but yep. he deserves it, uh, that buys like amazing tanks where you actually can control everything you want to control mm. and measure everything you want to do and do it in a proper way. Um, but it's pretty amazing to travel around and see as many just like plastic barrels filled with cherry stands. Sure. And then yeah. there is someone buying that from somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure if Ethiopia was the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, you would see some bizarre blue plastic containers yeah. in warehouses. Did they have any kind of measurements on them? Like uh, not temperature really, no. or pressure? Or no, but no. It, wasn't, it wasn't huge. And it wasn't something I was also searching for. I'm sure I could, could find more of it. Um, but for sure, I mean, definitely in, in Kusher, I saw a, a good amount of it. But it looks... I mean, from purely uh, uh, looking at it without investigating it, it looks very different from the idea of anaerobic processing. If you take Beaujolais, for example, sure. and fully hermetic stainless steel tanks. Yeah, it is, and I mean, it's it's that's not really on the subject of whether that's sustainable or not, because mm. interestingly, it, it kind of proven to be mm. because it raises the prices. The farmer is pitching for the same amount of coffee. Yeah. And even if the labor cost goes up, they can still charge so much more. Sure. That is, the, the math adds up, yeah. the finance adds up. Whether you like it or not, that's a discussion for another time, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but it's an, it's an interesting financial solution for a farmer in terms of increasing the price sure. of their coffee. I mean, depending on the stability of the price that you get for it. I mean, the thing is right now, it's, it gets a premium margin from roasters because it's an exceptional process. Sure. Yeah, it's trendy. So the idea is, if that does then come on to replace a segment to some extent, does it still then take on the? Do people still have the consideration to pay extra prices for it? Of course not. I mean, the more volume you get exactly. of a product, the less you pay, yeah. right? I mean, I don't think it will be. It's just so much more labor intense than sure. something else. So I find it hard to. Build. There's just a limit to how big these tanks can be. I yeah. think, but I'll probably be proven wrong at, yeah. at some point. Um, but um, I think it's still an interesting uh, part of it. Yeah, sure. Um, what else? Have we covered everything we want to cover? To, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that will keep popping up, but yeah, for the most part. You can do a part I two. Do, yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about a little bit about how, how quality is measured, mm. just because I do find that interesting in that, obviously, in, in at least my trip, a lot of the coffee is still on the trees or mm. is being submitted as cherry. So the purpose of this visit wasn't to go there and cup the best lots possible. It was purely to see how does the supply chain operate, who are the people that are managing these stations, uh, what are their thoughts on, on the coffee and their operation and, and our working relationship for the coming years. Um, but it was clear that the way that they were measuring quality was sort of, yeah, cleanliness of parchment, screen sizing, uh, which I think is very similar to uh, in Kenya, yep. there was very little discussion of uh, distinct terroir or varietal or flavor attributes. Um, so it's it's a very different idea than when you know European roasters would be choosing spot coffee, for example. Um, and there's a potential sort of conflict between these two different philosophies or ideologies in the sense that we're not always looking for the same thing. Uh, I mean. 
we've had a very interesting thing recently in that we received a bag of coffee which is full of overripe, underripe, very bizarre picked coffees mm. that's actually still pretty tasty for the most mm. part. But in this case, would have been sold not even as export, would just be as a local. It would have been made to, uh, used to make Ethiopian buna yeah, yeah. for the um, coffee service for the washing station employees. Yeah, I mean, it's the sh basically the shit that's over, right? Yeah. Uh, we actually paid, you don't know about this yet, but we, right. we paid a very high amount of money to one of my favorite farms to, to do a similar experiment mm. version mm. of sure. this coffee. Yeah. Uh, more about that later. Um, but the funny thing is, I just saw what they charged us for that. Sure. And they charged us like $30 a kilo more than what that normal product sorted, mm. well-processed would be. And we basically asked for an unripe mix of not sorted coffee. And that cost us $30 which, more yeah. than sorting the coffee, which is not mentioning any names here, but if you see this, I mean, that's an interesting... Right. I would love to understand the math behind that. Right? I'm not going to step in so. on that one. But if we were then to use this as an example, I mean, that price is determined, as I assume, based on their perception of cup quality. And No, no, that, that, okay. that, that additional price was only because it's a because special prepared lot. And that's, yeah, questionable. Highly questionable. Uh, but, but the other side would be, if you were to measure that based on quality standards from a sort of generally Ethiopian export standard, that would be the, one of the lowest grades, irrespective of if yeah, you sure. ask them to do it or not, sure. or whatever. When that's then shipped to Europe and delivered in bags for us to cup, it's a completely different measurement. Yeah. And I find that very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's... What that's, can we do to better understand yeah. each other's priorities in that sense? If, if on one side of the supply chain, it's yield and screen size and uniformity is the, the key, and on the other side, sure, those are variables, but those are variables that are fall way below overall cup quality and sensory perception. Yeah. Uh, is there something we need to be doing more to? I mean, that's 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 the main reason why I'm I'm um, honestly considering cutting out Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. Because the difference between um, a lot of Central South American farmers and what we see in in that part of Africa is that you actually find a lot of farmers farming for cup quality. Sure. You find it in Central America. You found it in South America. You go to Ethiopia and Kenya, and maybe you find someone, but that is the 1%. Yeah. And that's, you know, an, a needle in a haystack to even find that person, right? Sure. Because the farmers are not farming for cup quality. Sure. The wet millers are not wet milling for cup quality. Sure. They're doing it for efficiency and to be able to produce as much as they can, right? Yeah. The dry millers, they will sort the coffee and they will cup it. Sure. And I mean, we, we'll cup with one of the largest dry mills in Kenya during the trip, and that guy knows quality. Sure. They know their shit. They know yeah. exactly what they're doing. No, but, no doubt, yeah. But there's no process where that goes back to the farmer. Sure. Or that goes back to the cooperative. Yeah. Right? If the cooperative is amazing one year and then sucks the other year, they're yeah. just going to buy less. Sure. Right? Yeah. There's no like, oh, but what happened here? Sure. Can we make that better, right? Yeah. Uh, and the cooperative themselves wouldn't know either. Sure, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, because yeah, one no of my thousand farmers had a bad crop. And I think this, again, it's, this uh, goes back to it's not just the traceability of sourcing or the traceability of uh, sort of volume in this sense. It's the traceability of quality, positive and negative. Sure. It's, and I know that that's an overly romantic view of this, but it's this idea that if there is a 
correlation between harvests and you can trace those variables, there's at least some chance that you might be able to identify what that positive or negative development is, yeah. where that comes from. And if that can then, uh, you know, if we're working with several small producers in one region or one country, is that a learning that we can share between them? Does that create more consistency in itself? Um, so there's a lot of, it's why we're excited about this. It's, it's not purely based on this utopian idea of mm. traceability for traceability's sake. Mm. There's, there's, I think, a core idea as to how this can improve quality. Sure, and I this, mean, we, we want to make better coffee, yeah. right? But we, we can't make better coffee un, unless we know where the, where the coffee is farmed and yeah. how it's farmed, right? Yeah. That's, that's just the bottom line of it. Sure. Uh, it, it makes it too, it just makes it too complicated, yeah. right? And um, it's also important to, I mean, I want to move away from this kind of Kenyan coffee is amazing, Ethiopian coffee is amazing. Mm. And I want to go into, no, this farmer in Kenya is significantly better than all sure. other farms in Kenya, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. in whatever level, right? Because mm. there, is a, there is an identity and expression in, in some of those farmers that I'm sure is, is unique or, yeah. uh, you know, and, and deserves an opportunity to, to shine. Yeah. Uh, but then we need to be able to maintain that uh, or create that connection as well. And it's, unfortunately in Kenya, what we see is that you can't do that unless mm -hmm. you um, have, you know, the, the exporter doesn't let you in sure. because they have no interest in it. Sure. Because for them, it doesn't matter, yep. right? Because they're going to sell that coffee anyway. Yep. Um, so it's, it's uh, I mean, you go down to Kenya and the first thing a farmer will tell you before they even mention their crop or show you their crop is like, how much are you going to pay for my coffee? So that's like step one. Yeah, but you can't even have that discussion because there's an exporter yeah, that's, that needs that to fix that that for you. Right? So you're not even in a situation no where you're. Yeah. So it's 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 complicated, right? Uh, and we're gonna come back and we're gonna sure. discuss more about this because yeah. it's an interesting subject. We are gonna get some Ethiopian samples. Yes. We have some interesting yeah, yeah. things coming. We're gonna um, get some Kenyan samples. Yeah. We have some interesting stuff coming there as well, right? Yeah. Um, so it's more to kind of sum this up. What is it? I mean, discussion whether what's, what kind of comes first, the traceability or the cup quality, right? And I think we're focusing a lot in the industry on the cup quality. Yeah. And I think we're forgetting the fact that, that some of the best coffee in the world, I'm referencing Kenya now, mm -hmm. is coming out of really shitty farm practices sure. that are not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and I think Ethiopian coffee is amazing, but we can make it way better, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially, and... and Optimistically, yes, yeah. I believe so. I mean, c side note here, but yeah. let's talk about it. Quakers and Ethiopian coffee. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Insane. Is there anything more annoying? No, that's it's super annoying. If I'm from Geisha Village, and you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be better off, but yeah. you also pay for it. But yeah. I mean, just in general, right? So, I mean, how how come no one has fixed this issue? I mean, I think it's 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 insane. interesting because every dry mill I met, I went to in uh, Ethiopia had a colossal. Oh, yeah. So it shouldn't be an issue. No, no, in that no every, sense, everyone says know, it's never. But, but, it's like it's no potato in one and coffee. It, that's also bullshit. Well, no, right? that's I clearly mean, still the case. But yeah. uh, sure. The question then again here is like so. For example, if we talked about the, the problem here, wasn't that they had a colossata? I mean, whose problem is this? <laughs> yeah. They might be happy with the quality that they're exporting overall. Yeah. It's our problem that we don't. That for us, the quality isn't high enough. But then you could also make the argument, well, you guys should just be bigger that you can have your own color saw. Why can you guys not afford to have a color saw? We should have a color saw. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it, it, I think both of those arguments are valid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, it depends from which 
sort of perspective you want to to take this from. Sure. Um, and I mean, this goes to the operations of the wet mills as well. When we're talking about, well, we can't really do this because it doesn't work with the, what the wet mill is currently doing. We're very aware that, again, you could probably do it for a price, but is it necessarily worth that at this point? No, because it's going to distract them from what they want to already do, and they're not necessarily motivated to do it. And like we've kind of already discussed, there are challenges within that that mean that we're not necessarily going to get the full 100% traceable product anyway. It's better just to value what it is that they're doing and let uh, the wet mills develop by the mechanical dryers, increase the volumes, do what they need to do to maintain the sustainability of their business. Uh, our concern here is that... I mean, then, then the future of the quality of the coffee we get are going to be dictated strictly by uh, logistics, mm. right? And I, I, don't, I don't like that as an idea, right? I want, the, I want it to be based on um, quality, right? So sure. I, like, I have a wet mill here now, and I like my coffee, so maybe I don't produce more, yeah. right? Which, I mean, I understand it. It's always hard for anyone to put a cap sure. on their business. Yeah. But, you know, but... A part of this would be that the market's still buying it, though, right? So clearly what we're considering to be a, sure. you know, a quality cap, a, a problem in regards to the fact that the quality is not high enough so we can't purchase this. Well, clearly they're still producing more and selling all of it anyway. Yes, no, so, sure. so a part of that, it's not their problem, it's the market for tolerating it. Yeah, sure. And there's probably some economic strain in there as well, and that's actually causing further problems. Famously, roasters don't want to pay higher prices for coffee, and generally, if they increase their volumes, they want to pay less. Sure. I mean, that then, with the idea of the... Um, the wet mill wanting to increase their profitability, that's gonna create a huge compromise in itself. Yeah. So there's a lot of unsustainable practices in larger scale coffee purchasing in mm -hmm. general anyway, uh, that need to be considered. It will be considered and we will address them in a later video at a different yeah. point. But now I think we are gonna wrap up. Um, thank you guys for watching. If you have any questions for, for me or Joe, uh, Rasmus, or anyone else, just write them down here as, as always. And uh, thank you guys for watching. From us here at April, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thank you.